Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and we are joined today by a woman that I admire so very deeply, Imani Perry. Imani Perry is the author of seven books, including Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, which was a past Stacks book club pick, and her latest book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon Line to Understand the Soul of a Nation. This book is phenomenal. She is an American interdisciplinary scholar of race, law, literature, and African-American culture, and she is currently the Hughes Rogers Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University. And today we talk about going back to the South to write her latest book, The Seduction of Beauty and the Historical Importance of a Sweet Tooth. Imani will be back with us at the end of the month to discuss A Mercy by Toni Morrison for the Stacks Book Club on Wednesday, March 30th. If you like The Stacks and want more of it, please head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join The Stacks Pack. You will get perks like bonus episodes, virtual book club, discounts and merch, and shout outs on the show. Speaking of, here are some of our latest members of The Stacks Pack. Amethyst Jones, Melissa D., Rachel Anuziata, Krista Atwell, Beth Mowbray, Jamie Kearney, Wendy Hildenbrand, Shannon Bullock, Jess Lee, and Nat. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and putting your money behind the work of this show. There would truly be no podcast without the Stacks Pack. So if you like the show, please head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with the Imani Perry. All right, everybody. I am very thrilled today. I am joined by one of my favorite writers and thinkers, author, lawyer, historian, professor, all around genius person, and notably a literary mother, which is important as well. Uh, Imani Perry, welcome to The Stacks. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to talk to you. I'm so happy to have you. I think you are the first author I've ever had on the show after we've done their book for book club. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. I've had a few people before and then we chose the book, but we did breathe like a year and a half ago. We did it summer yeah. 2020. so almost two years Which, ago. Also, thank you so much for that. Oh. I really appreciated, you know, your support and encouragement and all the wonderful things that you said about it. So wow. thank you. Everyone, you can go back and listen. I was with KSA. He and I, we, we went in. We love, we love the book. We love you. But so for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. 
you know, that it, the self-description part is always sort of tricky. I mean, I guess the most concise way I would say who I am is I am an intellectual, a creative intellectual, a writer of creative nonfiction, as well as scholarship. I study African-American culture and literature, but also history and legal history. And I guess the sort of the energy behind everything that I try to do is to um, think about how we use the imagination to move us towards something closer like the beloved community and how to be in right relation to each other. And so my job is I'm a professor. Um, my <laughs> life is I'm a mother, but that's sort of like the zeitgeist or the soul of, of what I'm trying to do here. I love that. I love the creative intellectual part because I think in reading your latest book, South to America, I kept thinking about the ways in which you were writing history in a way that it didn't feel like history mm -hmm. and not that it didn't feel like history because it was like accessible for like seventh grade readers, but in the way right. that it didn't feel like history because you made it feel, it was like so creative how you did it. Like oh, it was like, yeah. I don't even, I really well, right. struggled. <laughs> to yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. to, well, right. It doesn't, so South America does not fit a pre-existing genre, although right. there, I guess there are books that are like it in the sense of sort of books that move through space and time at the mm -hmm. same time mm -hmm. and are books of encounter, but it's not like a sort of, like it's not history as a genre in the sense that like when you write a book that's a work of history, which I've done before, you know, you're telling a story and you're putting up and it has to have an argument and you're corralling your evidence in support of the argument. This is not an argument driven book. It is a kind of witnessing encounter driven book. And it's a lot of its focus is on how cyclical events that we right. describe as historic are right so we're living in the repetition of these like of these tensions or conflicts particularly around questions of difference and justice and the like and so right so it couldn't be for me to write the book that this needed to be it couldn't I couldn't tell it in a traditional history fashion right okay so let me ask you this because I I know you're a Virgo right mm -hmm. I Leo rising at moon Okay, great. I'm a Leo. Very feel like this is why we're connected a little bit. Um, and I think it's important that you're a Virgo because I I need you to explain to me how the hell you wrote this book oh, because uh, yeah. you go through like a bazillion places mm -hmm. and you're pulling on a gazillion threads and you're talking yeah. about you know the colonial times and you're talking about civil rights times and you're talking about yeah. the 1920s and you're talking about reconstruction. You're talking about yesterday and you're talking about the future and you're talking about it in all these different places and the food and the language. And sometimes you're talking about a really famous person that we've all heard of. And sometimes you're talking about someone we've never heard of. And like, mm -hmm. how did you pick where to go and what to write about? And did you start with a yeah. list? And then did some places not make the cut? And like, I just have so many questions <laughs> around the how of this work. Yeah, I mean, so architecture is really important for me. And architecture at the level of the book, at the level of the, so the book is sort of three movements and they're all shaped by the environment, but also the figures who show up in the landscape, the different parts of the South. But structure is also important at the level of the relationship between the chapter and the sentences. So there's a lot, 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 lot that got cut out, right? Mm. So if I'm sort of traveling to a place, let's say Florida, right? So for Florida, I wanted to, it was important to understand Florida is a place that we need to understand in terms of its history of 
violence and the site of conquest, because if we tell the story of Florida, we actually push back the, the beginning date of this American project mm. to the 1500s, right? We so, so, and that that was violent conflict. So the first sentence, and it's also, it has a distinct story, but it has a story that in some ways is representative. So the first sentence is Florida is a pistol for a reason because it's shaped like a gun, right. but that captures the Florida, but also a pistol in the biblical sense of a story. Right. So right. it has this kind of story that is instructive for us broadly. So every and it, the sentences moved through like that. So even the examples, because, you know, I, I'm an associative writer, so I'm making associations between things that seem. But that's a quilting process. Right. right. So it's, I'm kind of quilting in various examples to illustrate each point and making sure then throughout the entire body of the text that each point hits at least three times. Right. So it's structural, which required a lot of outlining I was say. and a lot of a lot of killing my darlings. There's a lot of stuff that I wanted to be in the book that just didn't fit. It just went it went off. The, it would go off the rails. Right. And I'd be like, it's too far, you know, to, to push people to the edge and then but to still hold them is tricky. Right. right? And you never know if you're going to hit it right. But there are times when I was like, yeah, this is too far. Right. Got to cut that part. So a lot of outlining, a lot of restructuring. And but when you went into certain places, like bef when you mm -hmm. started the project, did you have a list of specific places mm -hmm. you want to go, like specific cities? And then did you have an idea of what you wanted to talk about in each of those places? Or was your visit kind of the starting point for it's back? It was back and forth. OK, just depends. So yeah. So there are places. Yeah. Well, some places I had an idea like I knew from the beginning, North Carolina was going to be about religion like okay. that. I knew, but other places and I knew. Alabama was going to be a lot about mental health stuff, but other places I didn't quite know or things that moved around. Like I was going to, Knoxville was supposed to be about sugar, but then I wound up not going back to Knoxville because of COVID. So Got the it. sugar had to go elsewhere. Right. So there's, but, but I should also say like, I tell, there's a lot that I don't tell about each place I visit because the chapter has to fit into what I'm trying to do in the chapter. So it's, there's a lot of pruning, even in talking about the visit itself. Right, you know what I right, mean? Right, like, right. yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And that's how your brain works, you're saying. Like, you mm -hmm. sort of think in that way. How did you – this is me not even able to formulate my question, so this will show you how my brain works. I have a lot of difficulty with my brain of, like, trying to take how my brain works and make it productive for me, for the work mm. that I do. Is that something that's part of your process where you take sort of your – you're thinking that is connected with all the diff different threads, but you have a practice to make it more structured for writing yeah. or how does that work? I mean, I think it's both. That's such a good question. That's hard to answer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it is ritual, right? Like, so one, you know, the practice of writing and the practice of reading every day, right? I mean, reading is the most, is the single most important part of writing to me. Right. And so that's a piece of it. And writing that's not necessarily toward a goal, but actually the discipline of writing, I think is really mm. important. Um, but I also think, and I don't, I do believe that you work with how you feel, right? So you don't try to adopt another person's practice. You find the practice that, that right. works for, for, for you. But there's also the part that is the urgency of things that you want to say, right? Or that you right. want to put out in the world. And that's ultimately the biggest driver, right? And it's like the how, right? You know, the what. And you know the why, right? Because that's the passion, right, that's the right, value. Right, right. But then the how is a, is a constant act of experimentation. And I guess you sort of like chip away at it every day, right? That's yeah. the, that's what we yeah. do. No, I love that. 
Okay, you. this is not your first book. This is your seventh published book. It and is. I'm wondering <laughs> a little bit about that because this is your first New York Times bestseller, right? It is. Yeah. And so, I'm, I mean, you're brilliant. I think people Thank who've you. read your work know this about you. I, you're clearly like very rigorous in the work that you do and your process. And I, and I know from what I've read that this is not necessarily, you know, a better book than your other books. What do you make? of this being a New York times bestseller. Do you make anything of it? Do you think it's the time? Do you think it's like, Oh, it's, it's the structure. It's being with a big press. It's Mm. it, what the difference between an institution that can and did deeply invest in this Mm. book. I mean, I, you know, it's it's as simple as that. And I really keep, I want to say that because I think that from my own experience and for many from the outside in, it looks like magic when something hits a best seller sure, list, sure. as opposed to there was months of rollout preparation for this yeah. book, right? I mean, and that's normal for books that wind up getting that kind of attention. Right. Every once in a while, a book from a small press hits big, but that's right. very unusual. And that usually is it's the time or there's some interview that lights up. But yeah. so I'm very grateful, but I also think it's really important to both note that there is a big difference when you have a, an institution that is well-resourced behind your book. Right. And that there are books that live for generations that had very little support behind them and still will have an, a vast impact in the long term. And I just want writers to, to be aware of that. Yeah. I think that's so important because I know as someone who gets pitched a lot of books regularly, mm-hmm. which books have that marketing yes, and publicity right? resources put behind them. And I do think that it often translates to, you know, interviews and, and all of the things that mm-hmm. lead a book to be. But also, to be fair, I'm going to be hard pressed to see if this book isn't one of the best books of the year. It's just so good. And it's so Thank smart. You. And like, I, my only fear for this book is that it's too smart for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> That it's just like, it's like, oh, this isn't this isn't just something you can like read quick and be done. No, no, with. Like you have to allocate time with it. And I did listen to some of it on the audiobook and that's yeah. fantastic. You do all the voices, Thank which you. I love, 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 <laughs> love, love. Um, okay. I have some personal questions for me. Yes. These are sort of like advice questions. Number okay. one, and the most important is how did you find your family? I want to find my oh. people so bad and I yes. can only get to my grandparents. My dad was born in 1935. My grandparents were born in the 1915 and I just, I can't get, I can't get past it. Well, so well, I gave a bunch of different sites. I mean, I started with Family Search because it's free. That's the okay. the website that's owned by the Mormons. And then after I had done a lot, then I invested in paying for Ancestry.com. And I did 23andMe and I've done the, the DNA testing, which I know is not well advised, but I did it. <laughs> I did and it I found too. a lot of I found a lot of people that way, um, like a lot of people that way. But I think a lot of it is just cross referencing and also creative spellings. Mm. So. Names are spelled differently, particularly in Black books, you know, in our records, right? They just, from generation to generation, it's a lot of census records, property records. Uh, The good thing about ancestry is that you can also connect to other people's trees. So sometimes relatives, like I found a Mm. a relative who looks almost exactly like me and someone else's, like she had just gone to... um, the mountain mountains of South Carolina and taken pictures from an older relative who neither of us knew and then found wow. this picture of this woman. And my son is like 
take that woman's picture off the wall because it's creepy because it looks like you in old timey <laughs> clothes. Right? So, I love that. So it's yeah. So it's you know it. Try those those sites. They're okay. really they're good and people okay. are friendly. So they talk yeah. to you. Through the, yeah. Because you found all the you found all the way back to the 1700s. 1700s. Yeah. yeah, I was in I was in the car yeah. listening to you say that, getting mad, being like, I gotta ask her about this. How does she yeah. do it? Well, let me tell you something. So after someone read the book, this was just a couple of weeks ago, and said, I have actually found more information about that ancestor of yours through the Maryland Historical Society. Wow. So that's also the more you talk about it, like there yeah. are other people who are yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So cool. Okay. Another personal question for me and people who listen to the show will know this. One of my favorite books and actually probably my favorite movie is Gone with the Wind, which I know is highly problematic. And I get that. I want to talk about that kind of art though for a second, because I want to know, like, can we like it and how can we reckon with what the art is and the problems that are held there without just being like, this is a bad thing and we should get rid of it. Right. That's such a good question. I mean, I am not on the side. It's funny. I had an interview the other day with Ali Valshi on on his show on MSNBC, and he asked, how should we rewrite To Kill a Mockingbird for it to be less problematic? And I was like, well, I'm not for rewriting things right. like we supplement, right. right? I mean, and this is interesting, too, because, you know, the Tara, right, as a the house as or the yes. plantation as a character is a really interesting device, for example. And I think it's, and it's a, it's a powerful device that still shapes so much experience and is relevant for black people. Like, right. And this is why we sort of are fixated on home ownership and getting a house mm-hmm. and getting a land mm-hmm. like this, this motif. So I don't think we throw things away. I think we talk about them honestly and also attend to why they're appealing to us. Right. And also use that, right, for the creation of art. Like if I, I read, I, you know, I love Borges. I read Borges all the time. Borges mm. was a horrific racist, a <laughs> horrific racist. I mean, really, like not you sort of unapologetically. Right. 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 And so I don't like that, but I'm learning a great deal and I, from the work and I take pleasure in the work. Right. And I don't think I think we just have to be honest about that. I think there's a different question when it's someone who is alive and who is who's earning proceeds from the work, yeah. for example. Sure. Right. But if we're talking about things, some historic work, you know, and then tell tell the truth, fuller story. Right. Yeah. About what the plantation household was like. Right. The, yeah. Um, read the wind done gone with it. Right. Like, I mean, I say, you know. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. I feel better. <laughs> When you you mentioned it in the book, and I was like, I'm going to ask about this too. Okay, I have one other personal thing, which is just a comment. You have a sweet tooth. I do. Me too. Another thing I found out that we have in common while reading your book, I was loving all the references to what you were eating. Your honey bun that you got at the store. It's like, oh, she has a sweet tooth. We love this. I have a huge sweet tooth. And I'm actually not eating sweets right now because Mm. I'm saving saving my sweet tooth up for when I go to New Orleans. Oh, because I want beignets, but I have to like, I have such an intense sweet tooth. I have to de-sugar myself pretty regularly <laughs> like, to let it go. Just you but cut yeah. it off cold turkey. I do. I have to a ton. And I have the headaches and the withdrawal. Oh but I mean, gosh. there's also, you know, it's a, it's a big part of Southern culture. And yeah. I wanted to think about sweetness, not in the shaming way, but I wanted to talk about what it meant for people who had such hard scrabble lives and 
with limited resources, wanting a little bit of sweetness and wanting to give a little sweetness mm. to each other. And that that it's a tenderness, right? It's a balm. It's also though, not unlike the things that are the kind of feelings that drive meth addiction and sure. lean and all those, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of suffering and a mm -hmm. lot of very vulnerable mm -hmm. people. And I wanted to tell that story without it being sociological. Yeah. You know, or without it yeah. being like, you know, judgmental. Like, and so I, the best way is to be honest about it for me. Like when I'm tired, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm sad, just some sweetness just like takes the edge off. Yes. I, yeah. I'm with you. I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> I'm going to say, I mean, I definitely felt like in reading this book, my dad and his family, they're from Baton Rouge and they moved out here in the 30s. And so I've always really related to Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons because my dad mm -hmm. took, you know, the exact same path as the doctor yes. uh, pretty much. But reading your book reminded me that so much of who I am and so much of like the pathology of my family is still rooted in Louisiana, you know, because mm -hmm. my dad was very young. He was two when they moved out here. But, yeah. you know, just like this book really, it added so much to my understanding of just like little tiny things that I just thought were my own, you know, unique quirks. I'm like, oh, yeah. wait, that comes from somewhere. So I really, you know, appreciated that. I do want to ask you one more thing, which is in the beginning, beginning of your book, you talk about capitalizing white. Um, as yeah. in white people. And I would mm -hmm. I would love for you to sort of explain that because I know there's a lot yeah. of conversation about capitalizing black and there's mm -hmm. some disagreement yeah. about capitalizing white. Yeah. I mean, I for me and Nell Painter, the historian, actually wrote a wonderful piece about the value of capitalizing white. I mean, capitalizing black to me has always been not just important, but appropriate right because mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. it describes a people right it's like it's it's not just a color right but black is produced in this country through whiteness right mm -hmm. white actually is it is a an organizing social category it created other categories it disciplines people it was used to sort people according to law according to status you know and so to make it lowercase, particularly in this book, I thought would have been disingenuous. Mm. It is actually a very important marker of identity, right? No less significant, but more significant than American, right. right? Or European or African. And so I thought it would have been dishonest to, to make white a lowercase. Right. It's the thing that is moving at all of this about. And that doesn't mean, I think the difficulty people have is that the implication is that the capital means it's, it's important in terms of it being a virtue. Like it's a good thing. Sure. It just is, it just you is. know, <laughs> right? right. I mean, now what people do with it, that's an open question. And I also, you know, in, uh, it's not as though I have a position that in other books, I necessarily would still capitalize white, but for the point, for the point here, right. To name what has happened here. Yeah. Yeah, um, interesting. It's, yeah, it's important. Yeah. Wow. Okay, this is my last question about the book, and it's sort of a big one. So good luck to you. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things you talk about is like how the South bears the brunt of our shame in this country. That like a lot of you know yeah. the way that we think about America, we sort of are like, oh, and then there's the South, the bad kid, and they're a dropout and they right. suck. Do you think that there's something connected 
to that idea in the way that we're seeing a lot of these bills that are coming out of Southern states, like the book banning and also the book bannings and knowing that that's also happening in other non-Southern states. Like, do you think that, that it's like easier to just focus on what's happening in Texas and Florida and Mississippi and Tennessee and not to acknowledge that's happening in Arizona because it is like part Mm -hmm. of a narrative? Or do you think that there is something about the South that is purposefully being cruel to children? Oh, no. I mean, I think there is. It's worse in the South without question. And that has to to do with politics. I think the thing that for me is important, there's a couple things. One is that part of the argument is that the South leads the way in terms historically for better and worse, often Mm. for worse, right? So what, as the South goes, so goes the nation. So these are harbingers, right? In the same way that the environmental crisis that the South is facing is going, is coming to the rest of us, this kind of vile targeting of Mm. vulnerable children is not going to end in the South. This hostility to learning, to knowledge is not going to end in the South. It's often that, and I think it's, Part of the way to get that is to understand the red state, blue state thing is largely a fiction. It is a fiction predicated on the electoral college. The electoral college is a product of Southern power, right? Right. Historically, right? And the slaveocracy, right? So it all is sort of hinges on this. So the, the power of the South is sort of this red zone is a fiction because the whole country is purple. It's always the case that the majority of white people vote with what is now a kind of a a party that is like a neo-fascist party, right? Mm -hmm, The Republican mm -hmm, Party. mm -hmm. So it would be so naive to think that these things are going to stay there given the power of this ideology all over the country, right? Right. So it's a testing ground, right, for for what's coming. And it is always because of the ability of the way that sort of right-wing elites have con- can control politics in the, in the South, it can be a, an aggressive testing ground because they mm. have so much more leeway, right? right? And they have these very old ways of keeping people out of civic participation that they can pull out like a trick rabbit, but it's not, you know, those things can be, you know, the Southern strategy, quote unquote, did not just, you know, wasn't didn't just rest upon the South, right? I mean, right. It grew. And I, so I think it's just important for us to, I know that, and, and I especially thought about this during COVID, mm-hmm. like, like, not like we're not in COVID anymore, but you know, right. like, in the worst COVID. State, yeah, heavy COVID. COVID, <laughs> like when people are talking about not folks, not masking and they would talk about, well, of course people aren't masking in Alabama and Mississippi, but like, I'd go, you know, I'd walk around here in Philly and there'd be people who were unmasked, right. but it makes people feel safer to think these things are happening out there, but it's not accurate ultimately. And I think it allows us to be passive towards, mm. towards issues that are, that are national and even global. So. Yeah. 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 I've been thinking a lot about that. And also just the idea that like you're saying, like that the whole country is purple and also in a, a lot of these States that are controlled by the most red Republicans, mm-hmm. they have the most black people. They do. You know, and it's yeah. like so so even though their representatives are white, racist, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That is not indicative of the people who live there. And no. it's more indicative of the structures of gerrymandering and yep. you know, gerrymandering, the and composition of the court, all of that. Yeah. All of that. Right. So, yeah, um, I think 
I think that's my last question for now about the South, okay. though. I We're going to talk a little bit more about it at the end of the month when we talk about a mercy. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back from our break. So we do this once a month. I didn't prep you at all for this. So this is where you okay. get to show off your skills. It's called Ask the Stacks. People email me. They ask me for book recommendations. So we're going to give a recommendation based on this little letter from Kelly M. who says... I'm just getting started getting into narrative nonfiction and investigative journalism books. I read and loved the book about Jonestown that you always recommend, as well as I'm in the middle of Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. I know you have recommended a lot of these books, but I'm hoping you and your guest can give me some great recs for continuing exploring these genres. I've always been more of a fiction reader. Um, so I'll go first. I'll give a few and then I'll let you think and come up with some others. Um, okay, Kelly. So 
This first one I'm recommending because apparently there's a Hulu show coming out about it. And it's one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, which is Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. It's about okay. fundamentalist Mormons. And some there's a murder in there. Ooh. It's so good. So that's my first. And I think, um, what's the guy's name from Tick, Tick, Boom? J- Garfield. Andrew Garfield is in it. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. Uh, my next one is sort of a memoir, but it has some narrative nonfiction investigative journalism moments, which is Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward. Yes. I think she does such a beautiful job of sort of telling a story. So if you're a fiction person, it'll be there'll be a through line, but also she's talking about structural things as well. And sort of like you, Imani, you know, the structure of that book is so mm-hmm. important. Yeah, yeah. And then my last one is The Devil's Highway by Luis Alberto Urea, which is about, uh, it was written, I think, in 2004. And it's about immigrants coming to America through Mexico. Uh, It's a group of men and their experience. And it also kind of has a narrative story running through it, as well as a lot of researched bits about sort of the history of immigration to America from uh, Central and South America and sort of how, you know, all of a sudden there was a border when there wasn't one and all of that stuff. And it's a modern classic. So those are mine. Amani, you don't have to do three. You could do like one or two or three, whatever you want. Well, I will do a couple. I mean, one is, um, they're old though. Truman right. Capote's in, in cold Ugh, blood, which yes. is right. A, a kind of com- cause it's, it's a, it's an investigative journalism, murder mystery story, but it really pushes the genre of narrative nonfiction. It's absolutely brilliant compositionally. James Baldwin's Evidence of Things Not Seen, which is a direct influence for me for South to America, but also because, you know, he goes to Atlanta in this really key moment in the wake of the Atlanta child murders in the 80s. And it just is so evocative about the structure of politics in the mm. city that is calls itself the city too busy to hate, but which is very unequal. <laughs> and of course, you know, always South to a very old place, which is the most direct influence, but it's Albert Murray goes on assignment back to the South. He's living in New York at the time. He goes on assignment back to the South to figure in 1971 to figure out what has happened in the post-civil rights moment. And it's a beautiful rendering of the kind of interior-exterior relationship of a writer to their environment and relationship also to bodies of knowledge, which is why when, you know, the sort of the question of like investigative journalism, he's all, he's talking to academics, he's talking to business people, he's talking mm. and that it just is um, how you know something is a really, it's a question that like the book implicitly asks, which is always, always a good question. I love it. I've not yeah. read the last two, so I need to go and read those. Um, Kelly, if you read any of those books, let us know. And for everyone else, if you want to have your question read on air, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. Okay. I am very excited for this part. Now we get into your favorite books or the books of your life and all of these things. So oh. we're starting where we always start. Two books you love, one book you hate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> two books I love. Oh gosh, I love so many books. How do I how do I even narrow this down? Okay, I'll say this one. I love Zora Neale Hurston's Moses Man of the Mountain. That's one that people don't talk about that much. Mm-hmm. That is like that's really a beautiful story of Hagar. I also love this is a, a philosophical book, Elaine Scarry's On Beauty and Being Just, which is a book that's a sort of a cause for understanding beauty as a virtue, which is mm. sort of which is interesting. Um and the relationship between like, or the idea that the the conception of what is just as beautiful, that's really compelling. 
Oh gosh, a book I hate. Okay. I got in trouble for this before. And I'm just going to say it again. I got in so much trouble. Pride and Prejudice. I hate I hate Jane Pride Austen. and Prejudice. Oh my God, I'm with you. You will not get in trouble here. This is a safe space for hating books that everyone else apparently People, thinks are great. When I said, and they published it in, in the New York Times with a headline that I didn't like Jane Austen. People wrote letters to the editor. People wrote letters what? to me. They wrote letters to... Um, the president of the university, she sh- where I work, she should know better. She's educated. She should know you're supposed to like Jane Austen. It's really yeah. fascinating. Wait, yeah, the, but I can't. the university where you work, aka Princeton. Yes, a small. You may have heard of it, people. A small, you may have heard of small it. Small yes. Ivy. My, my uh, little job. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> what's What's the last just really great book you've read? Oh, you know what I um I just finished recently. I this is this is actually a really hard season because I haven't had time to read and write like I usually do mm-hmm. and it's it's I'm I'm really is that because struggling. you're doing press with for this book. Yeah. Yeah, and traveling around and just sort of like it's hard to just kind of totally unplug like yeah. but um I just read The Fortune Men by N- Nadifa Muhammad and it's okay. a really beautiful story about um a Somali man who is falsely accused of murder in post-war uh, England. Oh. And it's, but it's just sort of incredibly intimate. Um, and also deals with, with um, religion somewhat too. It, it's, it, it's, and it's a hard novel, but it's really extraordinarily composed. So, In your regular, not, doing press for your book and doing tourist time. How do you read? Are you reading multiple books at once? Are you sort of reading for pleasure and for work? Or are you more of a, what I call a one book pony? Okay. So with nonfiction, I'm always reading multiple books at once because so much of the nonfiction reading is either for teaching or for writing or for writing references or, you know, it's like a lot there's a sort of the academic grind to read constantly for pleasure reading. I'm very, very much a fiction person. And I will, if I have the time, I'll read a book in one sitting. Um, Are you a fast reader? I am. This is one thing I will say, I will brag about. I am a scarily fast reader. Oh, really? (laughs) You can read really, really. And my friends make a thing. So I was, one of my friends asked me to read her manuscript So I I said, okay, I have notes. And she said, she was thinking, Oh God, like she should just said she didn't have time to it read it because it was a couple hours later and she's like she just said she didn't have time to read instead of pretending she she said and then she you had all these extensive notes and oh I was my like, god yeah, I read really bad but um but I read books over and over again and Got so it. yeah um the fiction and memoir I love um for pleasure and those yeah I'm so jealous. I'm a very slow reader. I, which I just, I hate. I just want to read. There's just too many books I want to read. I'm like, there's I wish so I could many go books. faster. Uh, but I just, I can't. So it's my but lot in life. But then there, but then the books, sometimes the best, it's so bad because you like swallow. It's like with dessert and you, then mm. you get this great book and then you've swallowed it and you want to reread it, but you have to give a little time. A little time. And you wish yeah. you savored it. And so, yeah. Well, it's good for work, but I don't know that yeah. it's good for the pleasure reading. I meant to ask you this earlier for your work, because like whenever I Google you and I read your like bylines and all your things, it's always like you have like a million jobs. But when you're because te- you have a law degree and you have yeah. a Ph.D. and you have all these things when you're teaching, are yeah. you te- like each semester? Are you teaching in different fields or do you have to like pick a department to work? Like, how does that work oh. for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I teach all of my classes are in African American studies. That's okay. the home department for all of them. Um, so I teach classes that are interdisciplinary. So, okay. for example, I teach yeah, like introduction to African American studies, obviously, but African American intellectual tradition. I teach a course called Race in the City, which includes you know, memoir literature, but also sociological literature about the creation of cities and like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So it's, so they go inside the class. Got it. So you sort of like can build your own class that includes Mm -hmm. different things. Okay. Got it. I was like, how does that work? Does she have to just decide like, okay, 2019, (laughs) I'm in the law department or whatever. Got it. Got it. Um, Is there a book that you are looking forward to reading? Oh, I am looking forward to Dolan Perkins Valdez's next book, Take My Hand. Okay. And I loved her first novel. I mean, I loved, I've loved all of her work, but her first novel, Winch, which was about this resort. It's a historical, it's a historical fiction, work of historical fiction, but about a resort where, you know, enslavers took the women they had enslaved who they served, who oh. were as, you know, they basically um, held as, you know, institutionalized victims of sexual violence when they were concubines what they were called and um so the first novel is about that and then the second novel she was this beautiful work about a woman who was a psychic and this novel takes place in alabama so i'm really excited so she her work is historical fiction that centers black women so super looking forward to that yeah and then how do you decide like how do you decide what you're gonna read do you do you read reviews are you having like books sent to you do you have friends that suggest like who do you trust to tell you what you want to read I trust my friends my friends have magnificent taste in books um and I have particular friends who are like who I always take their reading recommendation so PSA of course and same Eddie Eddie (laughs) he's my number one anytime I'm like do I need to read this I'm like do you know this should I read it yeah 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 um and and also Eddie and Sarah Broom like those those three if they say to read something I will I'll read it but also I get it's so exciting now yeah people send books to me and I you know I almost always try to pick them up and read but it's it's also really hard and I know this is so 10 times harder for you than for me but you realize when there's so many good books like you just can't possibly pay attention to all this yeah incredible work and it's hard because you want writers to know yeah it's really it's really sad it's really like I just got Elizabeth Alexander's new book the Trayvon Generation and it's like so tiny and slim and I want to read it like right today, right, right now. now. Yes, yeah, yeah. I have an interview on Tuesday and I still have 150 pages there and I have an interview like, and I'm just like, uh, fuck, I yeah. can't like, I'm like, when yeah, am right. I going to get to this <laughs> book? I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to see if my husband can be with my kids all day today and tomorrow so that I can try to like read two books, but we'll see. Um, but I do know that feeling of like you want, and then I want to read so many classics because I'm oh, not yeah. very well read on like a lot of older books. Like I know some of them, but there's just so many books so many. Mm-hmm. that I want to go back to and like to help me understand what I'm reading now. But anyways, um, okay. What's a book that you like to recommend to people? Oh, so this one, the, this is easier. Um, I still think that the book that every young person should read is Chinua based Things Fall Apart. That's one I haven't I just, read. <laughs> it's you should re- and it's, it's I mean it's you can read it in one sitting but just to think about modernity in terms of you know 
encounter domination, settlement, and what it what does it mean for one world to pass away and a new world to begin? I just think that's something that every young person needs to know about mm. human history, like what that meant for the reorganization of the world. And so it's just this it's this very particular perspective, but I think it opens a frame of reference that helps helps us understand everything else. So yeah. I highly just, recommend that one. You're making me think of another question I have for you, which is sort of more because I want to know the answer. Um, you have two sons that we got to, got to know about in Breathe. And I'm wondering, are they readers? Do you all have like a relationship to books together? Or is that not something that's part of their lives at this point? Um, my older son is more of a reader than my younger son. Um, but so... But we do read things together. We always mm. did when they were younger. But they're readers in the other ways. Like, so they're kind of interpreters. Like they mm. have that set of kind of critical. I mean, my oldest son is in college also. So, of course, he's reading all the I mean, I mean yeah, yeah, they read for school all the time, right, which right, is right. another thing, too. But, you know, sort of the way that they had to when we watch watch films together or it's they, the kind of assessment of the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, like yeah, they're, they're they're critics. Yeah, that's that's the right word. And they're um, but they are beautiful writers, both of them. I love that. Uh, so. I really want my children to be readers, so I'm just yeah. like to suck up information from other parents. It's hard have. though, because like I mean, I don't, and especially for someone my age, right? So I'll be fifty this year. Like there is nothing to do for so much of every day besides read, right? right, like, right. When I was a kid, like <laughs> literally nothing else to do. Like, you know, right, and that's, right. you know, cause there were five, like even I watched a ton of TV as a kid, but everything was reruns. So right. even that would get boring, right? So it's, right. it's much harder to become a voracious reader now. But. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You said that you love memoir and fiction. Are there any genres that you're not that into or that you avoid? Hmm. I don't like, okay, I want to make a distinction here. I really like self-help books, which okay. is, I think would surprise people, but I do. I like the like, you know, find your best self, like that kind yeah, of yeah, genre yeah. book or like, you know, touch, touch your spirit. But I don't, um, but I don't like like instructional books about social problems very much. Like I don't, you know, I don't like the like, this is how we're going to you know, end sexism type. Oh, like I call those like race self-help books. Like yeah. those kind of ones. Yeah. I don't love those either. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I get that. Do you have a favorite bookstore? Oh, I love so many bookstores. I, I mean, I love in Philly. I love Uncle Bobby's. I love yeah. Shakespeare's sister. Um, I haven't been to Harry's bookshop, but I love the folks there. Like we've yeah. done. Um, I love Cheris books in Atlanta. I love a uh, Harvard bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I love women and children first in Chicago and on a bridge. But I associate them with, you know, places I've spent a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. This might be a taboo question and you can just tell me to fuck off. Do you have a favorite of your books? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know if you're allowed um, to ask an author that, but you have seven. I think you have the most books besides Jason Reynolds of any guest I've ever had on the show. Oh, so. thank you. I mean, I love, I love Breathe because my children are my favorite people in the world by far, by far, by far. And so anything that has anything to do with them. Um, the book I had the most fun writing, I can answer that, was May We Forever Stand because mm. so much, and that's for people, I assume people haven't read it, but it's a book that's a history of Lift Every Voice and Sing 
the song known as the Black National Anthem. And it was so much fun because I was in these archives that were just so delightful where I'm like just <laughs> reading school programs that describe what people were dressed, where what they were wearing and what music they listened to mm. and the order of ceremony and and memoirs and they talk about like, you know, their principals and their teachers and how wonderful they were. So it's like, it just, it was such, for someone who, who has spent so much time researching racial violence and Jim Crow laws and right. exclusion to be enmeshed in this just gorgeous world that Black adults built for Black children to try to protect them in the archive was heaven. It was uh, so much fun. I I wonder about like the range of your work mm -hmm. because you have written so many books about like really different things, mm -hmm. you know, like Lorraine Hansberry and like yeah. hip hop. And like, I'm yep. just wondering, how do you decide what you are wanting to spend time with for a book? Because I know your books, yeah. you don't write them in a month. I know you're not one of those, like, let me no. just sit down and do 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 do. So Years. how do you decide what you want to spend time with? And like, what is, what is your leading force in making a decision about what you want to write about? It's definitely passion. I am not you know, deliver like there are people who will say to me, oh, you should write about such and such because that would be really popular. And that's like almost an immediate turnoff. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't care I, because so it's all passion. I think it's sort of but I, I, you know, my mind is is going into a thousand directions at once every day. And I sort of throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. I'm a I'm a silly putty generation person. So I'm like, you know, it's like yeah. you're going to throw, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks and go back to ideas and turn them over in your head and go down rabbit holes. And if you, sometimes a rabbit hole is interesting for a half a day. Like sometimes I'll write one of my friends and I'll be like, I'm going to write a book about this. And I'll be like, okay, money, whatever. And then <laughs> by tomorrow I'm tired of it. Right. But then right. something okay. stay with you over years. And right. so it's just, it's sort of what stays and or stays and grows or pushes you in new directions. And right. Yeah. yeah Cause so. you had a year or like, I don't know, 16 months or something a few years back where you published like three things. But was that just because they came, like they just all came together at the end? Or yeah. were you like, so you were working on them, maybe one for seven years and one for two years. I and was like working on, so I had three books come out in 2018 and I had been working on all of them for five, six or seven years. Wow. That's just, yeah. So, crazy. Yeah. Every one of them. Yeah. Your bibliography, people are going to be like, wait, what, what happened here? Yeah, they like, do. What? Yeah, that's it's very confusing. And it's, and it's hard because people think but it's there are people who say to me, "Oh, well you should slow down." And I'm like, "Dude, like I it takes me a long time to write and I spend a lot of time researching. Like it literally is because I I don't work on things one at a time because that's not how my mind works." Right. Like I'm I I will wind up with writer's block. I'll get mm. frustrated. I have to be able to turn my attention elsewhere and take a break. It's just so I have just found the thing that makes this pleasurable for me instead of I tortuous. I see. But there are people who, who find that troubling. So. so like you'll be working on one book and get stuck and be like, okay, let me just go over here and write about this other thing. And so it's sort mm -hmm. of just like a different, I see. Yeah. That's so interesting. Huh. Mm -hmm. I, I have the opposite kind of mind. I have to be like zeroed in on like one thing. I more so I just like, I can't read a lot of books at once. Like I really got to just uh -huh. be zoned yeah. in. Okay. This is sort of our lightning round. So you're just going to kind of name off these titles. Oh, when they come to okay. You. Okay. What's the last book that made you laugh? 
Oh gosh. Oh, um, uh, Black Moses. Okay. What's the last book that made you cry? Hmm. When's the last book that made <laughs> probably South to America? Okay. <laughs> my own book. Yeah. Okay. What's the last book that made you angry? Oh, I know. Um, I just read because I was looking at it again for for a different interview. Um, I'll take my stand, which was a book that was a, a bunch of southerner southerners of the who were belonged to this group called the fugitives put together. That was kind of a justification for segregation and like the southern right wing, and they're the same people who were the kind of who sh- who shaped new criticism and English literature and stuff. And it's just a kind of awful collection of, so, of people. Sounds like a lovely bunch. <laughs> yeah. What's the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? I don't know if it's the last book where I felt I learned a lot, but I definitely learned a lot from um, Begin Again, Eddie Glaub's Begin Again, mm. about Bald, you know, Baldwin's lessons for a time helped me think about the world differently. I've been thinking, you know, it helped me under think about instead of like, I have this frame with thinking about race as like, in terms of contradiction, as opposed to for so long, instead, as opposed to thinking about how this system was designed as not, not even necessarily intentional, but that as having all of its, it's not contradiction as much as mm-hmm. like in, internal incoherence that is very deliberate. And that mm-hmm. helped me with thinking about South to America, but it, I keep sort of turning those concepts over in my mind that were in that book. Yeah. What's a book that brings you joy? Uh, Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place always mm. brings me joy. Oh, Song of Solomon always brings mm. me joy. Um, Do you think that Song of Solomon has a hopeful ending? Not really. I, saw, I, I read know. it. I really thought it did. did. And I re- I really felt like it was like a happy ending. I know that it might not be. When we talked about it on the show, I realized that maybe I was tripping. But well, no, but I but it's well, I think it's ambiguous. So yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I just, you know, Pilot, my friend Gina um, years ago said to me, you know, Pilot Dead is my hero. And I so I had read it and I went back and I was like, she's my hero, too. And so that's why they react. <laughs> so her her vision of the world is what endures. So to me, that mm. to a sense, it has a happy lesson or meaning. Like yeah. I feel like, yeah, Pilot is, you know, is, okay. the, is the hero of the, yeah, the literary sure. world. Yes. She is. I, I'm, I'm a big guitar stan. I love it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, guitar is very really, Leo of, of you. Very Leo of me, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very path, pathological. Uh, <laughs> are there any books that you're embarrassed that you still have not read? Hmm. No, I don't. No. I, I I mean, I, I will admit in a heartbeat if about classics that I haven't read. There's so many books. Yeah, so many books. I, <laughs> what's your problematic favorite book? Oh problematic favorite Neruda's um memoirs you know Mm -hmm. because he Mm -hmm. he describes a sexual assault yeah yeah um the horrific um and I I I had to think spend a lot of time reflecting on why I read past that scene as though I wasn't reading what I was reading multiple Mm. times interesting yeah yeah it's the seduction of beauty. You have to be very, and you know, we have to be really careful about things that we find beautiful or bring us pleasure as wonderful as they are, because yeah. they can, yeah. Anyway, we know that lesson from yeah. in a million different ways. Yeah. A million different ways. I mean, you are a professor, but if you were a high school teacher, what's a book you would assign in class? Well, 
I've assigned it um, multiple times in, in college, but I would also assign it in high school. Um, Anne Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi, hmm. which is, Moody was an, an organizer who was in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and an organizer in Mississippi Freedom Summer and the Civil Rights Movement. And she was a native of the Mississippi Delta. And she wrote this memoir about her coming of age and, you know, growing up in conditions of just incredible Delta poverty and becoming an activist and going to school. But it is just, it's just a stunningly crafted memoir. It's so beautiful, so evocative and meaningful. And everybody who reads it is transformed by it. And so when I've taught it, just, I mean, that's the book that every student connects to. Okay, I need to read it. Your my list is growing. It's a today. slow book. It's a slow okay. book too. Like you, I mean, you really you probably honestly you want to read in the summer, like when you have okay more time because <laughs> it's it's long. Well, I don't have summer. You, know, you don't the have same more time. Me. time yeah, right? I'm not it's a teacher easy. in school. <laughs> yeah, summer yeah, is the same. You um, you're an okay. educator, but you're not a teacher in school. Yes, yes, I am. I'm. I, am I an educator? I don't think absolutely. So. I don't think of myself that way, but thank you. That makes me feel smart. Um, <laughs> Who would you want? You can't say yourself. Who would you want to write the book of your life? Oh, one of my children. Mm. Absolutely. One of my children. They just, they see so much that I don't see. I, I know. Also, neither of them would ever want to do that, but I'm just saying that's what I would want. Well, maybe they'll hear this and be inspired. And um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to write something interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Well, maybe they can weave you in. Maybe they'll have your same mind where they'll be able to like bring you in like you brought so many of your people into South to America. Um, okay, this is my last one. And I stole this from the New York Times by the book. If you could require the current president to read one book, what would it be? Oh, what a great question. That's so good. <laughs> Can't take credit. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it might be Exit West. Ugh. So good. That's the first book club book we ever did on this show. Yeah, it's just, it's so stunning. And it, mm -hmm. and it's honest, mm -hmm. but it also like makes you imagine. As my friend Ashawn Crawley says, imagine otherwise, like it makes you want to think about how to arrange a different kind of world. It's just this incredible, mm. incredibly brilliant use of the speculative to make you imagine something other than the kind of cruelty of the current world. So yeah. Yeah, that he one. has a new book coming out this year. Oh, I'm so excited. See, that, when that, that day, everything will shut down for that I know. book. Yeah, that, I, I can't remember <laughs> what it's called. It's called like The Last White Man or something like that. Okay. I can't remember, but it's coming out later this year. I'm very excited. Um, all right, everybody. This has been a conversation with Amani Perry. Amani will be back on March 30th. We are reading A Mercy for the Stacks Book Club by Toni Morrison. I will just let everyone know. I'm very nervous for this conversation. I cannot wait. So you'll have to read the book. You have five Wednesdays in March. So you have extra time to read the book. You also need to go out and get Imani's newest book, South to America. You can get it wherever books are sold. If you've already read it, go get one of her other six books. There's plenty of work for you to do, people. <laughs> read Imani's books. They're all amazing. Um, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Tracy. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right. That does it for us today. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Imani for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Caitlin Mulroney-Liskey for helping coordinate this interview. 
Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, March 30th with Imani Perry. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack and make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review for more from the stacks. Follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.